All right, let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Malachi, chapter number 3. Malachi, chapter number 3. Man, what a blessing to get to be in the house of God. And I appreciate all that's already been mentioned. The prayer requests have been mentioned. I'm glad we have a God that answers prayers, aren't you? Uh, I pity these uh, people living in a world where they are very often, many of them steeped and mired in paganism, false religion, praying to a God that's never going to hear them. Amen. And what a blessing it is that you and I, as the people of God, can pray to a God that hears and that answers. I've seen him work mightily in my life. Have you? And as such, man, we have no reason to doubt his power in working in our life. Book of Malachi, if you uh, don't know how to find that, just uh, open to the New Testament and then take a left-hand turn. Amen. And you'll, you'll find your way there. It is the very last book in the Old Testament. And uh, it serves as as sort of a uh, of an epilogue to the truth of the Old Testament. And I don't mean that to say it is distinct necessarily in in its quality or in its characteristic, but merely to say that in its content, it is viewed as God's closing statement in the Old Testament. Now, I want us to uh, just maybe look at this passage a little different than maybe we have in the past, and trust and pray that God will use it in our hearts. In our lives, we're going to read uh, the first six verses, and then we're going to jump down a little bit, and then we're going to read a couple verses from chapter number four. So let's begin in verse number one, Malachi chapter three, verse number one. The Bible says, "Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come," saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Look down with me at verse 16. The Bible says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be on this Wednesday night, this midweek prayer meeting, letting us gather in this place. Lord, there's people all over this world that the greatest desire of their heart is to get to do what we are getting to do right now. 
And I want to be mindful to praise you for this opportunity. I pray that you take your word. May we rightly divide it tonight in a way that would bring you glory and in a way that would draw us closer unto thee. Father, I thank you for those that are present here. I thank you for willing hearts, Lord. Now may we be willing as we hear the truth of your word. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When you read through the book of Malachi, you are immediately struck that God is making some closing statements that are meant to be laid up in reserve for his people. I'm not sure how much that Malachi understood, nor certainly the nation of Israel, that this little book of the Bible would precede 400 years of silence from God. That for 400 years, much political turmoil and upheaval took place, much changed and, and, and transitioned in the state of the nation of Israel. And through that whole 400 years, God would remain silent. You think about the magnitude of that. I mean, 400 years, you think how much has changed in our world in 400 years. And for 400 years, God would not speak to his people. But he had left them with the Old Testament and left them with these parting words which looked forward and hearkened to the coming of the Messiah. You say, preacher, this is interesting, but what could this have to do with me and, and, and my life here in 2023 or whatever current year is? Amen. What, what could that have to do with me? You know, it's interesting. One of the great points of theological error that has taken place in our day has been rooted in the uh, lack of ability to discern between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible makes abundantly clear that he would come to earth. And one of the problems that Israel as a nation struggled with was they couldn't discern that there was a distinction between his first coming and his second coming. And when you read the Old Testament prophets, if we're to be fair, it's a little hard to blame them because often you'll find this, I hate to use the word blending, but I'm going to use it there, this blending of prophecies concerning his first coming and his second coming. You say, well, preacher, give me an example. Well, I can write from our text. Verse number one begins this way of chapter three. He says, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know who that messenger is. That messenger was John the Baptist. We're told explicitly in the New Testament that he was the voice from the wilderness from Isaiah 40. He was the messenger from Malachi chapter number three that was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. But when we come to chapter number or verse number two, it says this, who may abide the day of his coming, who shall stand when he appeareth, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. If I read my Bible correctly, that in fact did not occur at his first coming. In fact, the religious leaders of his day, far from receiving him, rejected him, uh, far from crowning him, they crucified him. And uh, today, the nation of Israel or whatever shell of it exists today is a far cry from what it was, even in the days of Christ, but certainly reaching far back into days whenever God was worshipped in purity in that place. And so... uh, When you read through the Old Testament, very often there will be this sort of shifting or blending of these prophecies that are given. And so it's not terribly surprising uh, that the uh, Jews struggled to distinguish between these two things. But you know one of the great things about hindsight? It's 2020. 
And one of the things that may have been a burden for them is a blessing for us in this respect that we understand clearly that there was a first coming, that it took place there in Bethlehem's manger whenever the Son of God, God the Son, was robed in flesh and walked amongst men. But we also know that there is a second coming that is getting ready to take place. By the way, this isn't part of my message, but likewise, many people stray into error when they don't distinguish the fact that there are two aspects to his second coming. There is a, what we might call a, a, a private return where he's coming for the church to receive his bride unto himself. But then there will be a public appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this public appearing that is sort of at the forefront of Malachi's prophecy here. And you say, well, that's interesting. But again, preacher, what does it have to do with me? Well, I, I'm struck by the fact that there are some similarities here. Here, this is God's final word to a people that were living on the cusp of the Lord's coming. And it may have been his first coming. And there are some things that obviously don't import from one situation to another. But I'm then reminded of you and I. We've received God's final word. There's nothing else. Hey, listen, this is this is his word. We're not waiting for some secret book to be uncovered, not waiting for some code to be cracked. We have God's inspired, inerrant, preserved word. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son from heaven. He has spoken by the inspired word of God. We have his final word to humanity in written form here in this book. And we now stand with that message on the cusp, not of his first coming, but on his second coming. And so I see a lot of similarities to the days that we're living in. For instance, there are sort of four things that are at the forefront of the prophet's mind in these first six verses. And the first we've already mentioned, but I'll just mention it again. There is an imminent return that is spoken of in verse 1. It says this, The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Now, this took place in his first coming when he was brought as an eight-day-old child, as the custom under Moses was, to be circumcised there at the temple. But how many of you know this is true? He's coming back again, not as a babe, not as a meek shepherd, not as a carpenter from Nazareth, but he's coming as a conquering king to take the reins of this world. He shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, I like this, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. You say, maybe he'll come. No, he shall come. You say, hopefully he'll come. No, he shall come. Whether you hope for it or not, he's coming back. Whether you expect it or not, he's coming back. He has given us his promise that he is returning. You say, preacher, what do I say to that? Say like John the Revelator. Even so come, Lord Jesus. There is an imminent return in verse number one, but then verses two and three deal with an impending reckoning that will take place. It says this, who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. By the way, the refiner's fire and uh, the fuller soap, it's not meant to destroy, it's meant to develop. It, it, it's not meant to annihilate, but rather it's meant to purify. And when he comes back, it, it, I understand that this earth is going to be or this world is going to be renovated by fire. But he's not coming back because he hates the world. He's coming back because he loves his people. He's not coming back to annihilate. He's coming back to purify. It says in verse three, he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. 
He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. One of the things that the Lord is going to do in the tribulation period is a major feature in this in purging Israel of her sins and breaking her heart and giving her a, a, a hope in the Lord. And you can read through it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. So I've always struggled for, with the idea that the tribulations for the church because it's Jacob's trouble. Right. That's why I'm a pre-tribulation rapturist. I don't believe we're going to live through a day of the tribulation. Say, preacher, why do you believe that? Because it's Jacob's trouble. It's it's Israel's sorrow. It's not meant for the church in in no way, shape. It, hey, it's Daniel's seventieth week that's appointed unto Israel, not unto the church. Ain't got nothing to do with you. Ain't got nothing to do with me as saved individuals in this dispensation of grace. And he, through the tribulation, is going to break the the self dependence of Israel as a people. But it's not that he might annihilate them, but it's that he might purge them and purify them. And one of the things he's going to do is bring about a real true righteousness in the people of Israel. And not only in them, but he's going to purify this world. Our world needs purifying. There's so much filth in this world. I mean, I can't imagine living in a world that has been cleansed of the unrighteousness that has so long reigned in this society. So there's an impending reckoning. And I would just remind you, when he comes, when he returns, he's not coming back for a vote. He's not coming back for a committee. He's not coming back for a poll, but he's coming back for a throne. And there's going to be an impending reckoning. And that'll lead into, I like this, verse 4. It says this, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. He says this, I will come near to you in judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord says, I'll come back. I'm going to establish Israel in righteousness. I'm going to judge those that are unrighteous. And I'm going to maintain a righteous society when I return. Man, I'm glad there's an immaculate rain that's coming. I want, he's going to do something with that throne. He's going to do something with that scepter. He's going to rule this world in righteousness. One of the maddening things of society today. And I don't know, I don't know if I'm mad at the inactivity or the activity of politicians more. I don't know if I want them doing more or doing less. Amen. Part of me just wants them to just stop, not touch anything else in society. But then we did send them there to do something. And I'm glad, hey, listen, the Lord won't sit on that throne in inactivity. He's coming and he's going to establish righteousness. He'll raise every valley. He'll lower every hill. He'll straighten every curve. He's going to set this world. Hey, isn't that what the book of Isaiah says? To order it. That's what the, that's what the prophet Isaiah said. That the government shall be upon his shoulders to establish it and to order it. I'm glad he's going to set some order in this world. And there's an immaculate reign. That's coming. And then I love verse number six. It says this, for I'm the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, here's these people and here's what God wants them to have in mind. There's an imminent return. There's an impending reckoning. There's an immaculate reign that is promised. And all of this is promised by an immutable redeemer. The word immutable means changeless. The Bible says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a sure hope, uh, steadfast, an anchor for the soul within the veil. I'm glad he's an unchanging God. 
Everything's changing constantly. And I'm not afraid of change. I just dislike it. There's a difference. Amen. I, I, I don't, I mean, listen, I, I'm not afraid of it. I, I understand that God has got us in his hand, but I, I just, I, I don't like seeing the changes in our society. I, they, they've all been for the worse. They've none of them been for the better. And, uh, I'm glad we have a God that is changeless. He's the same God. I take great comfort in knowing he's the same God that spun this world into existence. He's never once changed. People change constantly. Society changes constantly. The world changes constantly. Relationships change constantly. But God is a constant God. He never changes. And so there's an immutable redeemer that is coming. So in many ways, though, there are a vast number of differences. And I'm not dismissing those. And I can uh, just as easily as you situate this passage both theologically and dispensationally. And I, I understand that. I understand a lot of what's being spoken of here. He's speaking to Israel and giving them uh, a, a nail of hope to hang their, their faith on and, and, and encouraging them for what would be a dark, long, silent season in their history. But then I read verse 16 and I see something that transcends merely Israel as a people and rather sweeps in a category that both could and should include you and me sitting here in 2023. Verse 16 says this. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. We live in a day where it's hard to fear the Lord. And it's not because God has changed. But maybe it would help us to define that term fear before we get into our message. The term fear being used here is not one of terror. It's not one of what we would consider fright. But rather it is one of love, adoration, reverence and respect, including but not limited to the thoughts we have and the things we say, but reaching even under the respect that our life renders unto God. I don't know about you, man. I've started noticing a lot more police around. Have you noticed this in our city? I found that on Sunday mornings in particular, because I guess all the dangerous people are out about nine o'clock on Sunday morning. I'll be driving to church and I'll pass five or six state trooper cars. And they're, they're not out there busting drug dealers or pulling people over, giving them tickets. But I will tell you this, it's probably made me slow down a little. You see, when you have a respect for something that informs your actions, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you walk. I was talking to somebody the other day about hog hunting. We was talking about the changing of the weather. And I told him, I said, I don't go hog hunting when it warms up. And they said, are they just not out or what's going on? I said, oh, they're out. Them and the snakes. Amen. And I, and I just listen, pork ain't that expensive. Amen. It ain't worth having some copperhead latch onto your ankle and, 
I, I, you know, I, I've told people before, I, people say, well, have you got a phobia of snakes? No, no, sir. No, sir, I do not. Phobia is an irrational fear of something. And I, I think what fear I've got of snakes is perfectly rational. These people that own them and put them in tanks and hug them like kittens, man, they're the ones with the problems, not me, all right? And, uh, <laughs> and so when we talk about fear, we're talking about a, a reverence, a respect that informs and changes our behavior. And for this group of people that Malachi's speaking of in the Old Testament, they're a small, he doesn't say there's a bunch of them. He just said those that there were of them, all they wanted to talk about was the Lord. And I would say that we living in a similar day are likewise compelled. There ain't a lot of people that are serious about serving God. I know that. But can I say that those of us that know the Lord, love the Lord, and fear the Lord, our life ought to be saturated by Him. I, I, I titled the message, Fearing the Lord in the Closing Days. Maybe I could uh, give it this title. Survival advice for those living on the cusp. Let me tell you something. You want to survive with a right testimony, with a right spirit, and with a life that, that means something when you stand before God one day, you're going to have to saturate your life with the Lord. We're not living in days where culture is going to help you. The culture is set diametrically opposed to the things of God. But I take encouragement tonight that just as at this godless time in Israel's history, there was a group of people that said, I don't care what the world does, I'm going to fear the Lord. Likewise, we can live a life of salt and of light, of witness, of testimony before this world. And in light of that, the Lord made some statements about those that are serving Him, in this case, in the closing days leading up to His first coming. But I believe there's an application to those of us that are striving to fear the Lord, love the Lord, serve the Lord in these days that are leading up to His second coming. I want you to notice five things. I'll be done tonight. Notice verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Now, what was they talking about? Well, we're told down at the end of this verse that these were those that thought upon his name. What does it mean to think upon his name? Well, it means to think about uh, upon his character, his personality, and his history. To speak of a name, what does a name evoke to you? It names an identity. Uh, very often, it names certain characteristics because we associate them with that name. And then it evokes to us a certain history that is associated with that name. You say a particular name. You say the name Toby. And uh, you think of probably some dog you owned at some point. But I mean, if, if you do think of me, you think of me as the pastor. You think of certain things you know about me. And you think about our history together. Things that you know about our interactions one with another. Well, when they spoke of, uh, of him... They they thought on his name. They talked about his personality, who he was. They talked about his character, the things he did and how he behaved. And they talked about his history, what he had done in their lives. And notice what God did in response. The Bible says this, the Lord hearkened and heard it. Notice number one with me tonight, his regard of them that fear the Lord. You know, it's amazing if they were like most people living in a godless society, Probably very few people around them ever noticed the things that they were talking about. And I will tell you that the great things of God done in our day often pass in obscurity. Known only to heaven, but heaven's enough. 
And oftentimes in your life, you're going to feel, and this, by the way, is a tactic of Satan, to make you feel ostracized, alienated, and isolated, alone on an island, as though you're the only person in the world that loves the Lord and loves His Word. This, by the way, is why the house of God is so paramount. He didn't shove us off onto an island, unto ourselves, where we were to hoof it alone and, and try to try to encourage ourselves. He gave us a local church that we could be surrounded by people because iron sharpeneth iron. And we need those that know the Lord, that fear the Lord. We need somebody to talk to about God. Say, well, preacher, we ought to talk to sinners. Yes, most assuredly we should. But I will tell you this, there's something about being able to fellowship with those that know and love the Lord. That bolsters the heart and the mind. So whenever they were talking to each other, probably very few people around cared. But can I tell you who did care? The Lord took note of it. Your testimony, your praise and your witnessing to God in these dark days in which it is often spit back in your teeth, often dismissed and despised, does not go unnoticed by the God of glory. Now, someone will say, well, preacher, that's just a salve to, to soothe a, a, a failing ministry or a failing perspective. That we all, you know, we ought to be seeing. Listen, I want to see more people saved. I strive, I labor to see people saved. I trust you do the same. But I made my mind up long ago that I was going to rest in the fruit that God gave me. And recognize that at the end of the day, my fruit is not to win great crowds. My fruit is not to build vast crowds. My fruit is not to gain the accolades of men. My fruit is to, my meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. And I'll tell you, as long as you are connecting your worthwhile, your worth, your, your sense of purpose, your sense of value, as long as you are tethering that to anything except the approval of God, you're going to live in constant anxiety and discouragement and defeat. It ought to be enough that God's pleased. And you say, well, preacher, I, you know, I don't know if anybody notices. God notices. God notices. I see his regard of them that fear the Lord. Then look at the next phrase. Not only did he hearken unto it and, and hear it, God bent from heaven, lo, and listened to the things they said. But the Bible says a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. I've heard lots of sermons in my life, and you just have to know a little bit about the kind of church that I grew up in. It, it, it was a, you know, we had Bible conferences. We had great preachers, whatever that means, come in and preach to us and uh, you know, they, they always had their sugar stick sermons and their topical messages. And I can't tell you the numbers of times I've heard messages preached on the books that God has. And they'll talk about, you know, the, the, the book of the living. They'll talk about the book of remembrance. They'll talk about the Lamb's book of life. And they'll categorize and compartmentalize all these things. And they'll give you this verse and that verse. And I guess there's a lot of truth to a lot of things they said. Can I tell you tonight, there's a lot that I cannot tell you about this book of remembrance. I can't tell you if it was a literal book, although I assume it is because I interpret the Bible literally, grammatically, historically. I can't tell you where that book is kept. I don't know if God has a bookshelf, but I guess if he does, it might be sitting there. Can't tell you how many pages, if there's an index or an appendix. I can't tell you if it's leather bound or uh, hardback or softback. But what I can tell you is this, that the purpose for which God discloses this thought is that we might know about his record of them that fear the Lord. 
whatever we may in our imagination try to pry into to divine about what this book is and what it all means, here's what we can learn from this clear, plain-spoken verse of Scripture. That God not only noticed it, he marked it down. Now, why would a person do such a thing? I believe that God does such a thing because he has the intention of rewarding those that have lived for him in these closing days. Now, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that, but can I just remind you that there's a record of everything you've done in your life? But it's interesting. Isn't there already a record? So why then was this book written? Because God wanted to have a a chronology and an anthology of those that were willing to stand in a wicked day and to love him in spite of a world that had grown to hate him. I'll tell you, God values and, and everything... Everything is to be interpreted by its context. And I don't say this to diminish those that maybe in, in brighter and, and, and more blessed days, spiritually speaking, stood for God. I praise God for them. But I'm just telling you this. We shouldn't grow disheartened. As the world grows darker, the impact of the light shining forth is just that much more brilliant. And we can sit around and pour mouth the wickedness of society around us and how hard it is to serve God. Or we could recognize that we are situated in a unique position to take a stand for Christ. Hey, we don't even have to be particularly good at it. The world's just that bad. You don't even have to be an awesome Christian anymore. To be a Christian is to be radical. And uh, God takes note of those that are willing to stand in the day of opposition. It's easy to stand in the day of applause. And and part of the weakness of Christianity in the West is that uh, for a lot of years she stood in the men and, and, and basked in the shadow of men's applause. And there's a weakness that's developed in that. We're starting to see that change in our society. And we're starting to have to learn how to stand in days of opposition. Days when it doesn't make you popular to say, I believe that we have a Bible. Days when it doesn't make you popular to say, I I, I believe in the institution of marriage. Days when it doesn't make you popular to say, I believe that how God created mankind is how they are. It's not popular. That's okay. Can I tell you this? You say, preacher, nobody even notices and those that do get mad at me. But I would tell you this, that the Lord notices. And not only does he notice, he takes record of it. I see his regard of them that fear the Lord, his record of them that fear the Lord. And I like verse 17. It's it's precious. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. I see his reserve of them that fear the Lord. Sometimes, and I can't promise you how your life's going to end. I'll tell you this, I don't believe... I don't believe martyrdom has gone out of style. And we don't know what we may face in this country or around the world. But I am telling you this, that God holds precious every one of his own. And we don't have to live in fear, except in the fear of the Lord. The Lord says, that they shall be mine. You say, preacher, the devil's going to get a hold of me. No, God says they shall be mine. Preacher, the world's going to get a hold of me. No, they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. He takes proprietary ownership over those that are willing to walk in his name and to fear him. But he doesn't just say they shall be mine. He says, in that day when I make up my jewels. Again, another mysterious verse. I don't claim to understand everything about. uh, But I do recognize that the Bible makes clear when the Lord comes back, he's going to come back and he's going to be crowned with many crowns. Uh, He's going to be bedecked and bejeweled in glory and splendor. 
And I can't necessarily correlate everything. I, I do know this. I know that in the book of Revelation, well, let me back up. I know that in the word of God, we're told that faithfulness to God, consecration to him is rewarded with crowns. I, and I've always thought to myself, why would I care about getting a crown? I guess I'd go get a crown right now if I wanted. You go down to the Burger King. It's just such a strange thing, you know. But then later on in the book of Revelation, I read where God's people are pictured taking their crowns and casting them at his feet. And that's fascinating to me. Why would a man do that? Well, because he's taking that which represents the, the cumulative labor of his life. That which, which represents all that he's done that's worthwhile and valuable. And taking it and casting at the feet of the one who made it possible and the one who deserves the glory. But now what does the Lord do with those crowns? Well, you can believe what you want, but I believe those are the very crowns that when he comes back, he is crowned with many of them. In other words, here's this person living for God in a dark day. No one notices, no one takes record of it, but God notices and God takes record of it. And God says, I'm keeping a record of this because I'm going to reward them. And he says, there's coming a day I'm returning. And when I do, it's going to be their lives that I'm going to wear atop my head as a royal diadem. It's going to be the glory of their service and their faithfulness. He preserves them. I like this. I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. In other words, not just spared as a servant, but spared as a son. A blood relation. The most dear and the most precious. We can, we can live with confidence that our life is not without meaning, without purpose, without value, because God takes notice. We don't have to live in fear and terror at the world and its hatred, its viciousness, its wickedness, because we have a God that providentially has control over all things. I see his reserve of them that fear the Lord. Verse 18 says this, Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. This is an interesting verse. It probably has some application to Israel being brought back into the land for the millennial reign. But I think there's also an application to those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know how this is exactly going to transpire. I don't know if anyone's ever spelled it out. If not, shame on me. Maybe I ought to be a little more plain in the way that I preach. But the Bible makes clear that the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. It's the very next thing that's to happen. It is imminent, meaning at the door. It could happen at any time. He's going to return and... Uh, the Bible says we'll be caught up together with him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And yet when the Lord reigns for a thousand years, he's not reigning in heaven. He's reigning in Jerusalem. So what exactly is going to transpire? Well, the book of Joel tells us clearly that that the Lord is going to return with the armies of heaven with him. Revelation says the same thing. Uh, Enoch prophesied of this in the Old Testament when he said, The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. In other words, he's coming back. And guess what? We're coming with him. Amen. Several parables in the New Testament make abundantly clear that those that have been faithful in serving the Lord will, will procure to themselves positions of authority and of judgment and of, of administration in that kingdom. 
And so though I think there is a truth when he says, shall ye return, he's speaking of Israel as a people. I think there's also an application to you and I that will return with him and we will discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Let me say it this way. We see his restoration of them that fear the Lord. Shame on America as a, as a nation that she had such such a righteous framework and has let it slip away. I'm proud of our country. Don't misunderstand what I mean when I say that. But do you understand what a what a remarkable thing it was to have a country, the largest country in human history, the greatest empire. If you look economically and militarily, the prowess. It dwarfs even Rome's ancient glory. And for it to have been framed upon the principles of the Bible. And we have let that slip away. And we have become a thoroughgoingly secular society. And I think to myself, what it would be if all of that, even that America was in her glorious days, were to be restored. And we were able to live as a righteous nation again. But then I take encouragement because I look forward to a day when not America, but God's going to set up his own kingdom and it'll be perfectly impeccably righteous in every way. And then I'll tell you this. What's the old saying? Treason's a matter of dates. Things are going to look a lot different when the Lord's sitting on the throne. We are staring down the barrel of living in a society where Christianity has been criminalized. And it's happened over much of Europe and, and, and all over the world where it's criminal to be a Christian. Now, I don't mean it's criminal to say you're a Christian, but to live like a Christian has been criminalized. And we are hastening towards a day where that very well may be the reality in this country. Okay? Can I tell you this? Hey, nowhere in my Bible does it suggest that you and I that we're on the losing side. And things are going to change in a hurry. How is it that it says it at the beginning of this? He shall suddenly come to his temple. Isn't it crazy how quick things have changed? You ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, it's going to go from it looking as though the Antichrist has an iron grip upon this world's affections, adoration, and ambitions to in the blink of an eye with the parting of the clouds and the coming of the armies of heaven when everything's going to change. And I just, I don't know where I'll be, but I hope I'm up front close enough to see the look on his face. I mean, my soul, it's all going to change. And he's going to restore righteousness. And all of a sudden, in them that fear the Lord, as opposed to being cast out, they'll be set up in glory and set up in power. I see his restoration of them that fear the Lord. But notice a final thought, and I'm done. Over in chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name, that's that same crowd, that same crowd that in a wicked day was having to whisper of his glory and his goodness one to another, that couldn't stand up and, and always publicly shout it, but was gathering together amongst others that knew him. Them that fear my name. Unto you that fear my name, he says, shall the son of righteousness arise. 
with healing in his wings. Ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. I will tell you that time would fail me to situate this verse the way it deserves to be situated. It certainly is looking to Israel as a nation and the fact that there will be a remnant of those that believe on the Lord through the tribulation period of Israel as a people, those that have been reached by the 144,000, and I ain't talking about JWs, but those 12,000 of every nation of Israel that have converted their brethren to true righteousness and faith in Him. And that small remnant that has been preserved, the coming of the Lord, though it be destruction for those that stand in defiance of the King of glory, for them, they won't be seeing like a meteor from heaven come to obliterate their world, but they'll be seeing the Son of Righteousness arise to deliver, to restore them with healing in His wings. And they'll go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. You know, a calf of the stall has every need met. Every need met. They stay in that one place and their only job is to get bigger. Amen? That's a lie. And they're going to grow up with every need met, that remnant will. But you know, I also find a correlation here because all this that's said is true of Israel or that faithful remnant at least of Israel that God has promised would be preserved through the tribulation. But we could back up and also make an application because just as there is a faithful of remnant, remnant of Israel that will have believed on his name through the tribulation, there is likewise going to be a faithful remnant of those that have truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ even in the days coming up to his rapture of the church. I don't know if you realize this, man, but not everybody that says they're Christians a Christian. And you strip Christianity of its cultural force and you'll find that there's very few people that even knows what it means to be a Christian. Far more than probably we realize. I thank God for it but far less than profess his name. And I would say that for those of us that are living in the closing days and desiring to fear the Lord, say, preacher, what's on the horizon? What's on the docket? What's on the schedule? Well, I'll tell you what, the son of righteousness is coming back. and He'll arise with healing in his wings. And then guess what? We shall go forth and we're going to live in that millennial kingdom too. And we're going to grow up as calves of the stall just these very same promises he's made of Israel could likewise be said of those that have come to know Christ as their Savior, that we're going to grow up as calves of the stall. Preacher, what's the point of the message tonight? To encourage you. To encourage you to keep fearing him, keep living for him, keep standing for him, keep witnessing for him. The preacher, it's all so wicked, so rotten, so, so nasty outside, everything, the world's so broken and so messed up. Yeah, I know, but you're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. And I will tell you this, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about, one of the charges that Israel had made against the Lord is it was vain to serve him. He said, it's vain to serve you. There's no point. The world's getting worse. It's vain to serve you. God says, it's never vain to serve me. I say it to encourage your heart. to Keep going. Keep serving the Lord. Keep fearing his name. To take encouragement that we're on the winning side of this thing. Don't let defeat settle in your heart. We all have moments of defeat, but don't let defeat. Hey, defeat, defeat. Defeat, defeat. You have victory in Christ Jesus. Don't walk around with your head hung low, but instead go forward serving him in faithfulness. Let's bow together tonight. Miss Connie's going to play. The altar's open.
I want to give you an opportunity. I understand the character and nature of the message that was preached, but it may be that the Lord just did a work in your heart and in your mind tonight that you need to respond to. And if that's true, would you meet him in this altar? Let him have his will and his way in your life. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. Pray that you'd use it in our hearts and minds in Christ's name.